This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. How are you this summer? Uh, very well. All the better since I was kind of knocked out last week with a root canal, but I'm back in action. <laughs> that sounds miserable. It was, but it's much better now. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and we are honored to have as our guest today the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School, Dr. Bruce Gordon. Professor Gordon is the author of a number of works, including a masterful biography of John Calvin entitled Calvin, and he's also written a book on Calvin's Institutes called John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, a biography. He has agreed to sit for a two-part interview on John Calvin. The first part will focus on his life and the second on his influence through writing. So, Professor Gordon, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start with the early life of John Calvin. What do we know about his family? What kind of an upbringing and education did he receive? We don't know a great deal about Calvin's early life. There are there are certain aspects that have come down to us, but um, when I came to writing the biography, I, I tried to find out as much as I could, but there there are gaps there. You know, we know he was born in Noyon in Picardy uh, in 1509. We know a little bit about his uh, father, who was a notary who worked for a, a local bishop. We can surmise that his father had great ambitions for his uh, son. He sent him off to study law, which famously Calvin then changed his mind about. We can guess, for instance, that you know he, he spoke the local dialect, and it wasn't till later, perhaps when he was living in, in Paris, that uh, you know he came to speak the French with which we associate him. So in, in a sense, French was almost the second language for him. And indeed, so one could almost say his first language was uh, Latin, because he was a, a prodigious young man, clearly very talented, was went to Paris to, to study. There were high hopes of what he would achieve in the world. In his um, biography, which he wrote it, for the beginning of his Psalms commentary in 1557, we learn a little bit about this, and you know we get the sense of a you know a relatively you know middling family, but uh, one with aspirations for their young son. Now he obviously was raised as a Roman Catholic. You mentioned mm-hmm. his father's work for the bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did he move from being a Roman Catholic embedded in the church, embedded in the culture of his day, the local culture, and then the, the culture of Paris to becoming a Protestant? It wouldn't have been the word maybe he would have used, but how did he make that shift? It's Again, it's a little bit shrouded in mystery, because. Uh, but Calvin, again, in his autobiography, if you want to call it that, gives us some clues. He went to Paris. You know, he was there around the same time that uh, Ignatius Loyola was there. We don't know they met. There's no record of that. But it was a time in Paris where there was an extraordinary range of religious views. And it was clear that a number of the sort of perhaps better said, evangelical views, those who held to the authority of the gospel, were circulating in Paris. Calvin came to know some of the people who were supporters of the evangelical cause. He became in some ways associated with them. We know that. Uh, he was probably involved in a famous incident in 1533, where the rector Nicholas Cobb gave an address, which seemed to espouse uh, views that were associated with the evangelicals. So he fell into that 
circle clearly became sympathized with that movement. But to say he was a full-blown Protestant at that point is far less clear. These are people who had ideas about reform. They had a high view of the gospel. Then when you know the affair of the placards happens, which was the spreading of evangelical views, which caused a scandal, Calvin fled Paris and went to the south of France, where he lived for a little while with a friend. And then he left France in 1534 to go to the city of Basel. He talks about in his autobiography that he had a conversion experience. We don't know exactly where and what exactly it was, but he talks about a kind of warming sensation to the gospel. By the time he was in Basel, he was in a Protestant city. We can assume that his position had shifted clearly by then. And then, of course, we get in 1536, this unknown person writes the first of what's to become his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And at that point, he clearly is a Protestant. So, you know, we can put together the story, but it's the details are a little hazy. Does it seem as if he was most influenced by writings from other evangelical writers, or was it the conversation that was sort of in the air in in 1533 that seemed to have the most... Do we have a sense of where the the influences came from? I think we'd probably have to say all of the above, that he was moving in circles where these ideas were being discussed. Paris in, in the 1530s was a sort of hotbed of people who were not outside the Catholic Church, but were talking about reform in a variety of different ways. We know Calvin knew many of these people. We know that he visited with them. But at the same time, writings from German lands, including those of of Luther, were circulating in France. Uh, Works of Zwingli became available. So we don't have you know, specific evidence, but, you know, we can surmise from what Calvin starts to say in his early writings that he has picked up ideas that were circulating in both print and in conversation while in France. So while in Basel, we are introduced to Calvin through the Institutes. How does he move? And I want to talk more, obviously, about the Institutes because of their significance even, even today. But just tracking along with the biography, how does he get from there to Geneva? How does he get from Basel to Geneva? Yep. Yes. Well, he he's in Basel, and he says again in his autobiography he had hoped, you know, it was the city of Erasmus. He had hoped to become a famous humanist, and it's then he has this something of a, of a conversion experience. He travels widely. He's down to Italy. He returns home to France. To a long story short, he, he stops in Geneva on the way. He has to do that because of the wars that are going on at the time. He has to take a, something of a detour through Geneva. And he tells, and again in his, his autobiography, the famous story of his encounter with Guillaume Farrell. And Farrell tells him, almost sort of frightens him into this notion that uh, he must proclaim the gospel he must espouse openly his beliefs. And Calvin speaks of his almost terror in this encounter and how it brings him to stay in Geneva from 1536 until, unfortunately for Calvin and Pharrell, they're thrown out in 1538 because of uh, opposition to their teaching and what they want the church to be. So he's there from 1536 to 38. He leaves Geneva, travels around. He's in Strasbourg, comes under the influence of Martin Bootser. He comes to know a person who will be extremely important in his life, Heinrich Bullinger in, in Zurich. 
and then through a variety of reasons, he's called back to Geneva and he returns in 1541 and there he will remain until his death. I wonder if you could zero in a little more on what it is that gets him kicked out the first time. So he ends up in Geneva. His friend threatens to sort of have God curse him if he doesn't yeah. stay there. And he does stay and, mm-hmm. and ministers. But then how is that ministry received and, and what is it that leads to him being ejected from the city? Well, it's a kind of mixed reception. Geneva has just gone through a kind of revolution where it's thrown off the authority of the Bishop of, of Savoy. There Again, there's a sort of ferment of religious ideas. So there is considerable, and Pharrell has played an important uh, role. He is a highly significant figure throughout Calvin's life, but particularly in the early years. And one of the issues, the role of Bern, the city, the Swiss city of Bern, is very important because Bern in 1536 had moved westward and and expanded the Reformation into the French-speaking parts of what's called the Pays de Vaux, now modern-day Switzerland, the French-speaking part of Switzerland, down towards Geneva. So the Bernese were very significant players in this story. And Calvin gets himself into difficulty with Pharrell on a variety of reasons. Not only his preaching, which is very forceful, but also practices relating to the discipline of the church, the idea that the church should have a strong disciplinary structure, but also practices such as the way in which the Lord's Supper should be uh, celebrated, conflicts with practices as they were established in Bern. So, it's, it's a number of squabbles that leads to the, the officials deciding that they would be better off without these two, and they're thrown out. Calvin would later say that basically inexperience on his part led to this happening. It should never have really come to this, but he was, he'd kind of absorbed the sort of hothead attitude of Pharrell. They were too extreme, they pushed too hard for change, and as a result, uh, they irritated too many people and uh, were thrown out. When Calvin returns in 1541, he's a much more experienced uh, pastor and preacher and has a much clearer idea of how reform should take place. Yeah, so that that's interesting. So then when he does come back, he has a slightly different, at least, mindset. And he's certainly seen different things. You mentioned about his time in Strasbourg. Yeah. He's seen some different things. And so he comes back a different man than he arrived yes. the first time. Now, when he comes back to Geneva, he has a pastoral role. But that looks a little different in Geneva than than we probably envision it today. So what did Calvin's responsibilities consist of in Geneva? It changed somewhat during his time there. But I think the thing we would you know, want to draw attention to is, and is often not appreciated, was he, he preached almost continuously, weekdays and what we'd call weekends on Sundays. He preached so that the people in Geneva were hearing Calvin's voice almost continuously. He would preach on the Old Testament during the week. He would preach on the Gospels and Epistles on different days. And he, of course, preached Lectio Continuo. Would, you know, he went at the start of the book and went through each of the, the books of the Old and New Testaments, so that as these sermons progressed, and they would go on for quite a long time, people would hear Calvin on the different books of the Bible almost daily. And so he, and he preached we you know, believe almost entirely from memory. He spoke extempore from the pulpit. His sermons were written down by others. So one of the things I'd want to stress is he, his role as a preacher. But he had other uh, 
obligations. He was part of the a company of pastors, which oversaw the life of the clergy in, in the city, the pastoral work that they undertook. And of course, famously, he was part of the consistory, which was also under the jurisdiction of the rulers of Geneva, and that oversaw the daily life of the community, um, often reconciling quarrels and problems, and focused in, in part on the protecting of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper from open offenders, and that's where it could be most uh, controversial. And then later in his career, he becomes involved with the academy, which is founded in Geneva in 1559. So he's a teacher, he's a preacher, he's involved in the institutional life of the church, but he's also a, a pastor. And this is something that has only come out recently in the, in the scholarship, the extent to which Calvin served as a, you know, what we would call pastoral care in the city. The consistory was not just simply about slapping people's wrists for what they did wrong. It was its primary uh, role, as Calvin would see it, was to bring about reconciliation and to rehabilitate people who had fallen into open sin. And he saw this very much as a, as a pastoral role in the city, not simply as a sort of moralistic disciplinarian. So along those lines, I wonder if you could just briefly give us a, a summary of what is a difficult issue for many when they're studying Calvin, his role in the trial and execution of Servetus in, in Geneva. Yes. I have to say that it's you know, when you do a biography of, of Calvin, it's the thing that probably gets mentioned most often. And quite rightly, Servetus arrives in Geneva in the summer of 1553. He is re revealed uh, to Calvin. Calvin's role in this is significant, but it's it's a complex story. We don't know, for instance, why Servetus, who had had been in contact with Calvin, and the two had openly disagreed over a, a period of time. There had been an exchange of letters. Calvin had sent his institutes to Servetus. Servetus had sent his works to Calvin. He thought they were very strange, and he thought that this person was uh, a heretic. Servetus was widely regarded as a heretic across Europe by both Catholics and Protestants. This was not unique to Geneva. And it's important to say that, you know, he had been captive in, in France. He was a man who was pretty much on the run and would have been imprisoned just about anywhere. But he arrives in Geneva for whatever reason. He is exposed, he is arrested, and Calvin becomes the primary as the leading theologian in the city, becomes the sort of principal theological prosecutor, if you want to call him that, in the trial. But the trial is very much controlled by the magistrates. And this is a time when Calvin's relationship with the magistrates is not very good. His opponents are largely in authority, and they're quite concerned to not let Calvin dominate this, for Calvin's will not to be determinative of what happens. They want to keep this very much in their their own hands. However, they need Calvin. Calvin interrogates Servetus. The relationship between the two is not good at all. We know from Calvin's letters and other sources that their discussions were extremely hostile. Calvin believed that Servetus was a heretic. He predicted that Servetus would die in Geneva. Uh, and, and his reports were very clear that Servetus was uh, a heretic. But Calvin did not have the authority to 
declare that Servetus should be executed. The um, Genevan Council consulted, the other Swiss cities consulted other people. They all wrote back and said, if he were amongst us, he would be executed. The Genevan magistrates carried out that execution. I think it's fair to say that Calvin supported it. Calvin believed that a, a heretic should be executed. This was, was justified in his sight. But it's not, I think, fair to say that he was in control of the events or in control of the process. The magistrates were quite determined that he should not be. Last question on this part of our interview. Dr. Gordon, you spent a tremendous amount of time dealing with all these materials related to Calvin, ones that he himself had written and accounts of others about him. If you were to kind of step back and think about some of the perhaps lessons learned from the life of the man, impressions that you have from having spent so much time with him, are there ways in which he is an example to us, a cautionary tale to us? Uh, were there things about his character that were particularly impressive or, or, or were there aspects that we should be warned against? Uh, that sort of thing. Sure. sure. I mean, he was, I tried to show in the biography, uh, he was a very human person. You know, when one looks at the Reformation wall in Geneva, he is this, this image of this extraordinarily powerful person, literally cast in stone, as if, you know, he wasn't ever real. So what I drew from the biography is that he was, on the one hand, you know, one of the brilliant writers of his age. You know, he could write beautiful Latin, beautiful French. He played a big role in crafting both of those languages in his time. He had an extraordinary ability to explain arguments uh, lucidly and clearly, both from the pulpit and uh, in print. So one you know, learns about his authority and his popularity growing exponentially because he was an you know, extraordinarily talented communicator, and he could speak to the people's situations. He described a world in which those who suffered persecution, those who were refugees, could understand his teaching and his primary message that God is in relationship with them, and God will never break that relationship. God is with the people, even, you know, in the extremities of suffering. And that's a message that carried a lot of weight in the kind of chaos and wars and persecution of the 16th century. So, you know, one learns that the clarity and force, but also the compassion which was expressed in his writings really did resonate with the people. And that's one of the reasons why Calvin and Calvinism, as it became later known, spread so quickly and so widely throughout Europe. And then, of course, you know, into the transatlantic world. Um, what other uh, uh, lessons on, on, on the more problematic side? He could be an extremely difficult person. He was very hard on those around him. He made extraordinary demands. His friends suffered greatly at times from his anger. He demanded absolute loyalty. He was a dominant figure. He was clear himself in, in some of his letters to his close friends, Vire and Farrell, that his anger could get the better of him. He often drove people from his circle because of anger getting the better of his temperament, and he admitted that himself. 
But we have that you know, scene which uh, Theodore Beza writes at the end of his life of Calvin, where his friends gather around the bed of the dying Calvin, and that friendship meant a great deal to him, but his relations with his friends could be problematic. So I think we look in Calvin and we see the strengths and weaknesses of a leader, a, a charismatic figure, and we're reminded that those who hold offices of great authority uh, remain very human people. Dr. Gordon, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation, but thank you for your time. Uh, you're very welcome. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go and part one of our interview with Dr. Bruce Gordon. We'll be broadcasting part two on the influence of Calvin and the writing of Calvin in our next episode of Theology on the Go. Just for listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you the chance to win a copy of Dr. Gordon's biography of Calvin. If you haven't read it, it's well worth reading. It's just entitled Calvin by Bruce Gordon. If you'd like the chance to win that, go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you to enter. Thanks again for listening to us. We are supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you could do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Mm -hmm.